Fourth part of chapter one of the second volume of the Life of Reason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Fredrik Karlsson. The Life of Reason by George Santayana. Side note. Instinctive essence of love. True love, it is used to be said, is love at first sight. Manners have much to do with such incidents, and the race which happens to set, at a given time, the fashion in literature makes it temperament public and exercises a sort of contagion over all men's fancies. If women are rarely seen and ordinarily not to be spoken of, if all imagination has to build upon is a furtive glance or casual motion, people fall in love at first sight. For they must fall in love somehow, and any stimulus is enough if none more powerful is forthcoming. When society, on the contrary, follows constant and easy intercourse between the sexes, a first impression, if not reinforced, will soon be hidden and obliterated by others. Acquaintance becomes necessary for love when it is necessary for memory. But what makes true love is not the information conveyed by acquaintance, not any circumstantial charms that may be therein discovered. It is still a deep and dumb instinctive affinity, an inexplicable emotion seizing the heart, an influence organizing the world like a luminous crystal about one magic point. So that although love seldom springs up suddenly in these days into anything like a full-blown passion, it is sight, it is presence, that makes in time a conquest over the heart, for all virtues, sympathies, confidences, will fail to move a man to tenderness and to worship unless a poignant effluence from the object envelop him so that he begins to walk as it were in a dream not to believe in love is a great sign of dullness there are some people so indirect and lumbering that they think all real affection must rest on circumstantial evidence. But a finely constituted being is sensitive to its deepest affinities. This is precisely what refinement consists in, that we may feel in things immediate and infinitesimal a sure premonition of things ultimate and important. Fine senses vibrate at once to harmonies which it may take long to verify, so sight is finer than touch and thought than sensation. Well-bred instinct meets reason halfway and is prepared for the consonances that may follow. Beautiful things, when taste is formed, are obviously and unaccountably beautiful the grounds we may bring ourselves to assign for our preferences are discovered by analyzing those preferences and articulate judgments follow upon emotions which they ought to express but which they sometimes sophisticate so too the reasons we give for love either express what it feels or else are insincere 
attempting to justify at the bar of reason and convention something which is far more primitive than they and underlies them both true instinct can dispense with such excuses it appeals to the event and is justified by the reason which nature makes to it it is of course far from infallible it cannot dominate circumstances and has no discursive knowledge but it is presumably true and what it foreknows is always essentially possible unrealizable it may indeed be in the jumbled context of this world where the fates like an absent-minded printer seldom allow a single line to stand perfect and unmarred the profoundest affinities are those most readily felt and though a thousand later considerations may overlay and override them they remain a background and standard for all happiness if we trace them out we succeed if we put them by although in other respects we may call ourselves happy we inwardly know that we have dismissed the ideal and all that was essentially possible has not been realized love in that case still owns a hidden and potential object and we sanctify perhaps whatever kindnesses or partialities we indulge in by a secret loyalty to something impersonal and unseen such reserve such religion would not have been necessary had things responded to our first expectations we might then have identified the ideal with the object that happened to call it forth the life of reason might have been led instinctively and we might have been guided by nature herself into the ways of peace sidenote its ideality as it is circumstances false steps or the mere lapse of time force us to shuffle our affections and take them as they come or as we are suffered to indulge them a mother is followed by a boyish friend a friend by a girl a girl by a wife a wife by a child a child by an idea a divinity passes through these various temples they may all remain standing and we may continue our cult in them without outward change long after the god has fled from the last into his native heaven we may try to convince ourselves that we have lost nothing when we have lost all we may take comfort in praising the mixed and perfunctory attachments which cling to us by force of habit and duty repeating the empty names of creatures that have long ceased to be what we once could love and assuring ourselves that we have remained constant without admitting that the world which is in irreparable flux has from the first been betraying us ashamed of being so deeply deceived we may try to smile cynically at the glory that once shone upon us and call it a dream but cynicism is wasted on the ideal 
there is indeed no idol ever identified with the ideal which honest experience even without cynicism will not some day unmask and discredit every real object must cease to be what it seemed and none could ever be what the whole soul desired yet what the soul desires is nothing arbitrary life is no objectless dream but continually embodies with varying success the potentialities it contains and that prompt desire everything that satisfies at all even if partially and for an instant justifies aspiration and rewards it existence however cannot be arrested and only the transmissible forms of things can endure to match the transmissible faculties which living beings hand down to one another the ideal is accordingly significant perpetual and as constant as the nature it expresses but it can never itself exist nor can its particular embodiments endure Sidenote. its universal scope love is accordingly only half an illusion the lover but not his love is deceived his madness as plato thought is divine for though it be folly to identify the idol with the god faith in the god is inwardly justified that egregious idolatry may therefore be interpreted ideally and given a symbolic scope worthy of its natural causes and of the mystery it comes to celebrate the lover knows much more about the absolute good and universal beauty than any logician or theologian unless the latter too be lovers in disguise logical universals are terms in discourse without vital ideality while traditional gods are at best natural existences more or less indifferent facts what the lover comes upon on the contrary is truly persuasive and witnesses to itself so that he worships from the heart and beholds what he worships that the true object is no natural being but an ideal form essentially eternal and capable of endless embodiments is far from abolishing its worth on the contrary this fact makes love ideally relevant to generation by which the human soul and body may be forever renewed and at the same time makes it a thing for large thoughts to be focused upon a thing representing all rational aims whenever this ideality is absent and a lover sees nothing in his mistress but what everyone else may find in her loving her honestly in her unvarnished and accidental person there is a friendly and humorous affection admirable in itself but no passion or bewitchment of love she is a member of his group not a spirit in his pantheon such an affection may be altogether what it should be it may bring a happiness all the more stable because the heart is quite whole and no divine shaft has pierced it it is hard to stanch wounds inflicted 
by a god. The glance of an ideal love is terrible and glorious, foreboding death and immortality together. Love could not be called divine without platitude if it regarded nothing but its nominal object. To be divine it must not envisage an accidental good, but the principle of goodness, that which gives other goods their ultimate meaning and make all functions useful. Love is a true natural religion. It has a visible cult. It is kindled by natural beauties and bows to the best symbol it may find for its hope. It sanctifies a natural mystery, and, finally, when understood, it recognizes that what it worshipped under a figure was truly the principle of all good. The loftiest edifices need the deepest foundations. Love would never take so high a flight unless it sprung from something profound and elementary. It is accordingly most truly love when it is irresistible and fatal. The substance of all passion, if we could gather it together, would be the basis of all ideals, to which all goods would have to refer. Love actually accomplishes something of the sort. Being primordial, it underlies other demands, and can be wholly satisfied only by a happiness which is ultimate and comprehensive. Lovers are vividly aware of this fact. Their ideal, apparently so inarticulate, seems to them to include everything. It shares the mystical quality of all primitive life. Sophisticated people can hardly understand how vague experience is at bottom, and how truly that vagueness supports whatever clearness is afterward attained. They cling to the notion that nothing can have a spiritual scope that does not spring from reflection. But in that case, life itself, which brings reflection about, would never support spiritual interests, and all that is moral would be unnatural and consequently self-destructive. In truth, all spiritual interests are supported by animal life. In this, the generative function is fundamental, and it is therefore no paradox, but something altogether fitting, that if that function realized all it comprises, nothing human would remain outside. Such an ultimate fulfillment would differ, of course, from a first satisfaction, just as all that reproduction reproduces differs from the reproductive function itself, and vastly exceeds it. All organs and activities which are inherited, in a sense, grow out of the reproductive process and serve to clothe it, so that when the generative energy is awakened, all that can ever be is virtually called up and, so to speak, made consciously potential and love yearns for the universe of values. Sidenote. It's euthanasia. This secret is gradually revealed to those who are inwardly attentive and allow love to teach them something. 
a man who has truly loved though he may come to recognize the thousand incidental illusions into which love may have led him will not recant its essential faith he will keep his sense for the ideal and his power to worship the further objects by which these gifts will be entertained will vary with the situation a philosopher a soldier and a courtesan will express the same religion in different ways in fortunate cases love may glide imperceptibly into settled domestic affections giving them henceforth a touch of ideality for when love dies in the odour of sanctity people venerate his relics in other cases allegiance to the ideal may appear more sullenly breaking out in whims or in little sentimental practices which might seem half conventional again it may inspire a religious conversion charitable works or even artistic labors in all these ways people attempt more or less seriously to lead the life of reason expressing outwardly allegiance to whatever in their minds has come to stand for the ideal if to create was love's impulse originally to create is its effort still after it has been chastened and has received some rational extension the machinery which serves reproduction thus finds kindred but higher uses as every organ does in a liberal life and what plato called a desire for birth and beauty may be sublimated even more until it yearns for an ideal immortality in a transfigured world a world made worthy of that love which its children have so often lavished on it in their dreams End of chapter one